So I want to welcome everyone to this uh, day long on the third foundation of mindfulness and um, appreciate again the interest in going more deeply into this core teaching. We uh, don't always do it, even on retreats. We sometimes give very basic instructions and don't go into the detail which we'll be able to go into today. And I think it's actually quite important this series can be extremely helpful for developing the sense of interest and investigation in our practice, the sense of curiosity. I think it's quite easy sometimes for our sense of our meditation practice to get a little bit in a rut or just to get into kind of an easy, vague calm. Has anyone ever experienced that? It has its positive aspects. We're not causing too much trouble. But it can very, we can very easily have a certain kind of pleasant calm in meditation and think, this must be it. You know? And there's a very important way that we can develop that sense of energy, interest, curiosity, investigation in our practice. I think one of the main uh, positive results of these uh, days, this series, is that we can have uh, a greater interest, curiosity, energy uh, to really look to see, oh, what's there? What's this like? And, and that quality of interest investigation, as most of you know, is one of the factors of awakening. You know, it's sometimes called investigation or investigation of dhammas. And it's uh, very significant. I think it's a, it's a, so this series, I believe, is a, is a wonderful way to enhance uh, that quality in our practice. And, and I, I expect that those who have been at the first two in this series have experienced that quite a bit. Um, so let me introduce myself briefly and say a little bit about the day, and then we'll get right into it. Uh, so my name is Donald Rothberg, and I um, know a number of you. A, a number of you, I, I believe, I'm meeting for the first time. And I'm one of the Spirit Rock teachers. I teach, uh, as some of you know, on Wednesday mornings. I share that teaching with Sylvia Borstein, and uh, teach a number of the retreats here. Uh, regularly teach the January Metta Retreat. And uh, this year, earlier in the year, I, I was one of the two-month teachers. Uh, and so teach, teach that. Have, um, have a, a wide interest, wide set of interests. Uh, you know, I love uh, meditation and uh, love retreat practice and love the exploration of the nature of, of humans and of consciousness and so forth. And yet I also have a, a strong interest in how to uh, make this come alive in our daily lives in this culture, you know, with um, texting and, you know, the giants in the playoffs and other similar phenomena, you know. And, and uh, partly I, uh, uh, related to that, I, I have a, also have a background in psychology, have uh, done, gone through the Hakomi training in body-based psychotherapy, and that influences my teaching, as well as having um, uh, 
I, I did a doctorate uh, in a past life um, in the area of philosophy, so I also have that, that background as well. And further, I've had for a long time an interest in connecting our inner work with uh, helping to um, effect uh, social change and connect the inner practices with social justice and social service. And so have worked a lot of years with Buddhist Peace Fellowship and have also been involved with a series of training programs, which has really been my major activity in that area. Training programs for people who are, as it were, out there in the field making the connections between their inner work and their, their service and action in the world. And so that's, that's a significant interest. And uh, that'll influ- the, that, in, that uh, influence will come in maybe in subtle ways, not, not always so directly. And I do have a, uh, some copies of a book that I did systematizing that work uh, as a kind of practice manual for people interested in that. That's on the table, which you can look at later. So um, in terms of the day, uh, a few things. Uh, first of all, I was just wondering um, how many of you have been to the first two day-longs? So that is about half of us. It looks like about maybe 30 30 or so. And how many have been to at least one of the two? It looks like the same. uh, If you've been to two, raise your hand also. (laughs) My my training in logic comes in handy here. (laughs) That's that's a little more than half. and how many are new for this third foundation for today? Okay, so that's, that's, uh, that's nearly half, probably 40% or so. So that's a, that's, that's a lot. So that's, that's helpful to know. And I will say in a little while uh, some about the first two foundations. The emphasis is on the third foundations, but I wanted to give some brief review as we did in the guided meditation. So let me say a little bit what I have in mind for the day. Uh, Generally, uh, I've divided it into uh, four segments in which we'll be in here, uh, two before lunch and two after lunch, and then between the two segments uh, in the morning, two segments in the afternoon, there'll be a walking period. And that'll be, also there'll be guidance on, on working with different aspects of the third foundation in those walking periods. So it's, also, it's a chance to be out, to connect with the earth, and also to have some silent time. Generally, we'll do those walking periods and then also come back to a guided meditation at the beginning of each segment, the second, third, and fourth segment. Uh, lunch will be 12.30. We'll have about an hour for lunch. And uh, hopefully most people brought their lunches. How many of you uh, didn't bring, did not bring your lunch? Okay, so just a few. You can, you can go to the Woodacre Deli, which is just a few minutes away by car, and I think an hour should be enough time to go there and come back and so forth. So um, roughly 12.30 to 1.30, and I'll, you know, we'll go some with the flow but I, in terms of the schedule, but I want to stay pretty close to it. So in the morning, the, uh, we'll, we'll go to the walking period, um, in, in about 40 minutes from now, probably something like that. And that'll also be the time to use the restrooms, you know, and so forth. 
let's hold the day in mostly in silence, except for when we're talking in here. So in the walking periods, if you can stay in silence, except if there's some uh, need that you need that you have to attend to, uh, with myself or with uh, uh, Sean, who's uh, helping with the day. And generally in the walking periods, I will be up here um, to uh, and available if you wish to to talk to during those walking periods. So the first segment will be a overview, to some extent a review of the first two foundations, and then an overview uh, of some of the key terms and of what the sort of preparatory um, introduction to the third foundation. Um, we'll then do in the uh, walking meditation some of the third foundation practices. And then the second segment, the one before lunch, will be totally focused on unpacking what the third foundation is, is about. Uh, probably we will we'll need some further time in the third segment to do that, the one after lunch. But so probably we'll have some time also to keep on unpacking some of the aspects of the third foundation in that segment after lunch. Um, and we'll also bring in how we apply and practice the third foundation, bringing in some other elements as well. And so that'll be focused on applying and practicing uh, both in our formal practice and in our daily life practice. And then the last uh, segment will uh, bring in some further tools and perspectives on the third foundation and will also be a time for integration, so a time for any remaining uh, questions and so forth. And uh, most of you uh, should have the uh, text of the Third Foundation as a handout and also the, uh, a list of practices and reflections for developing the Third Foundation, which will be the uh, segue to the fourth uh, day long in the series. So for people who are doing the multiple uh, day-longs especially, you can have uh, a chance to practice with those reflections, which people had a chance to do, I know, with uh, Sharda's handout from last time. So that's the, that's the intention for the day. And I'll just say that uh, the, some of the recording from uh, Sally Clough Armstrong's day-long uh, which was uh, about, about um, maybe five or six weeks ago at the end of August, is on the website Dharma Seed. And probably most of you know that. Uh, I think the first part of it did not record for some reason. And so that's not there, but th there's, there's about an hour and a half uh, from that day. I did not find yet, uh, when I looked, I did not find Sharda's material on Dharma Seed. So I don't... Uh, it may not have been recorded or designed to be on Dharma Seed. For people who want some further material, there are, there are a lot of talks on the foundations of mindfulness. Some of you know that Joseph Goldstein has a really masterful series of some, I don't know, 30 47. plus 47 <laughs> talks which are on the foundations. He, got, he was inspired by Analayo, uh, this book that is... Uh, for the people was a gift for people who are doing all four, and as a, a recommended uh, accompaniment to the series, uh, Satipatthana, the Direct Path to Realization. He was inspired by that and gave 47 talks on the foundations of mindfulness, which are I think all on Dharma Seed. 
And uh, for people who want um, less than 47 talks to, to listen to, uh, you can listen to some of them selectively. Or you can also uh, listen to a number of other people have talks on that. I, I gave during the two-month retreat, for example, I gave an hour-long talk on the second foundation of mindfulness on feeling tone or Vedana. I think it's uh, from uh, March of this year, and that's available. And I also, in some of the Wednesday sessions, have given, uh, given work on mindfulness of the body as well. So you could look there or look under probably many teachers have individual talks on the four foundations of mindfulness and available in this tremendous resource, uh, Dharma Seed. So I think that's it for uh, kind of overview and logistics. Any uh, questions before I go right into the content area? And I think we will have, is there a volunteer when we have discussion, is there a volunteer who can bring the microphone along to, okay, you can do that. And you, know, and you can, uh, I think you turn on two buttons and we'll, uh, we'll use that during the, during the time. Okay. Yeah. Let's see. I'll, I'll repeat. I'll repeat the question for now. But let's bring the mic to any further questions. Yeah. 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 Trained in complexity, right? No. Just joking. <laughs> So the comment, the comment is about the, having heard that the third foundation is the most complex and looking forward to the day. Um, I think they, they all have a lot of complexities and there, there are some further, yeah, there are a lot of complexities. I don't, I don't know about comparison and you know, if we could go to the fourth foundation has all the different frameworks and in some ways that could be seen as more complex. But it's very complex, and I'll bring in also part of my, part of my background has my, I look a lot at uh, the cultural issues, you know, the, the questions of translation of the words, and you know, how, if at all, our minds are different from the minds of 2,600 years ago in rural Asia. <laughs> I think your laughter indicates that there might be something to look at there. <laughs> So, um, so yeah, those are, those are complexities, the complexities of thoughts and emotions, cultural constructions of emotions and thoughts bring in a lot of different factors. So there's a lot, but there's a lot of complexity, I think, with each of the foundations, but thank you. Any other logistical questions? Okay. So let me begin with a review, a brief review of... Uh, the nature of mindfulness, the nature of the teaching of the four foundations, and then look at some of the key terms that are involved and the key uh, terms, uh, particularly as we start to look at the third foundation. So uh, first of all, what is mindfulness? You know, we want to get a better understanding of that and partly we uh, want to understand some of the uh, complexity of that. 
So in the text, mindfulness is understood as the capacity to remember and know what is predominant in experience. Some of you know that etymologically the word sati, S-A-T-I, which is the word for mindfulness, um, has connotations of memory and remembering. And it's always been interesting for us to say what that means because we often think of mindfulness as meaning being in the present moment. And what do we want? We want to get away from memory. Right? We want to be in the present moment. But there's actually a quality of uh, remembering to be present. You know, and in some of the uh, further texts on mindfulness, the one who is mindful is said to be one, and you may know some of these passages, who can remember what happened long ago. So there's an interesting connotation. I think the main sense of remembering is the remembering to be present and being with the object. So it's a state of non-distraction. And so remember in the text later we'll see that one of the qualities we want to track is whether the mind is distracted. Um, Mindfulness in the text is also understood as a kind of natural presence of our minds. It is a capacity that is often said to guard our minds, to guard our experience, to be protective because it, to use our colloquial English, it establishes space around whatever is happening, thereby decreasing reactivity. And this is going to be perhaps the main reason why mindfulness is liberating in that we can be with whatever's happening, notice reactivity, reactivity meaning a kind of compulsive grabbing hold or pushing away, which can often uh, proliferate and take us into storylines, worst case scenarios, and tremendous suffering. And with mindfulness, we notice that it's happening. We notice the reactivity and we can really see why in a sense it is a protector or something that guards our awareness, guards, guards our minds. It creates the possibility of clear seeing, of not being lost. Again, the basic liberating power of mindfulness is in the clear seeing and the way that we are not lost, not caught in reactivity. In that sense, and this is a third aspect of mindfulness, mindfulness leads to wisdom. Mindfulness is connected with wisdom, understood as seeing things as they are. And this really can remind us, it's not really in the actual text, that mindfulness occurs in the context of the whole path of practice, which is sometimes not seen. And I think it's a particular an issue when we look to all the secular applications of mindfulness that are occurring very quickly in psychology, education, all sorts of areas. In the Buddhist context, mindfulness is 
understood especially as right mindfulness, sama sati. And right is kind of a Victorian word, but it, it's opposed to mindfulness which is wrong in some way. There's a word micha sati, M-I-C-H-A. And it's an interesting term because we could think someone can, I can be very mindful as I am uh, um, burglarizing, burglarizing a house. I can be very mindful in a certain sense as I am preparing a bomb. And the question is, uh, is that right mindfulness? And in the, in, in the text and in this tradition, mindfulness is part of a full path. It's quite important. What that means is that mindfulness is connected to ethics and mindfulness is connected to wisdom. And the, the danger of some of the secular application of mindfulness coming from the Buddhist tradition is that more holistic perspective might be lost. Mindfulness just becomes a technique and is especially disconnected from ethics and wisdom. And so that, we have to remember, is the larger context here. And again, even though it's not mentioned in the Satipatthana Sutta. And it's quite, it's quite important. I think there are some other aspects of mindfulness which, which we find, which we find especially in the, in the way that most of us have been taught mindfulness, not always in the text. We find that mindfulness is present-centered. It really has to do with being in the present moment and being with experience <coughs> in a direct way. And so we're particularly able to notice the um, experience that's occurring in the present moment, whether it is in the body, feeling tone, thoughts, emotions, and so forth. We can notice that as it's occurring in the present moment. We, something that, that I think many of us add in a Western context, we say that mindfulness is non-judgmental. And this isn't a term that occurs in the ancient text. This is more the Western psychologization of <laughs> mindfulness. And it was very interesting. One of my students did a, uh, like a, a long piece of work on this, and he found that the way that mindfulness is coming into psychology, one of the primary ways uh, that mindfulness is defined among psychologists these days is in terms of its non-judgmental quality, which of course is very important for us and very important quality, but it doesn't appear in the ancient text. And they said the origin of this for the psychologists was going to retreats at IMS or Spirit Rock. <laughs> the psychologists have those in the definition because this is what they learned from uh, Western meditation teachers making their own cultural translations and adding non-judgmental. So, um, just when you think of mindfulness as non-judgmental, know that that can be culturally useful, but it's not there in the, in the ancient text. Interesting point, isn't it? And that's a major way that mindfulness is entering the culture. Non-judgmental, be non-judgmental. So, again, very, very helpful. And then I'll just add uh, two other points about mindfulness. One of them is, is that, uh, again, although this isn't in the text, I think partly in the sense of mindfulness being connected with a unified path, that mindfulness, I think this is certainly the experience of people who do mindfulness, mindfulness is ultimately connected with the heart as well. And something that I'll 
go into in talking about the core term for the third foundation, which is citta, which is really mind-heart. But that sometimes we separate mindfulness practice, for example, and metta practice. But I think that there is a way that we can explore, again, not this isn't in the text, in which as we practice and look at experience, there's a natural compassion that may arise when we are, for example, with difficult experiences. And that the, that the spirit of our metta practice, of our hearts, is, it can be very much with our mindfulness. And sometimes we teach those as sort of separate practices. But it's been the main theme, for example, in the way we teach metta at the January retreats, that we really look to the way that metta and mindfulness connect. So that can be a theme that we look at. Again, this may be more of a uh, contemporary way of talking about the third foundation than something we find immediately in the text. And then the other, the other thing I wanted to say about mindfulness is that um, in the course of the day, I'll talk a lot about three ways of being mindful. And that these are, in a way, uh, sequential and increasingly uh, depend on the previous ones. The first, very familiar to most of us, is mindfulness as simply noting. And this is, we find this in the, in the text, know that there's a short breath, know that there's a long breath, and this is the basis for Mahasi Sayadaw of Burma uh, developing the system that's a primary system that we use here at Spirit Rock and at other centers where we, uh, in part, uh, note what's happening. We develop these quiet mental labels in the mind to note what's going on. You know, we may say in, in for the in-breath, out for the out-breath, or we may notice a particular thought or a particular emotion and give very quiet labels to us which help us to stay, as it were, on track. You know, it's one technique. As I mentioned in the guided meditation, there are hundred, hundreds of ways that mindfulness techniques have been developed. You know, uh, there are many, many of them. And so it's good to remember that, that uh, you know, this noting technique, we, we can see that it can be consistent with the ancient text, but it's really one interpretation of how to be mindful. Another second way that's very fundamental to be mindful is to, particularly when something is present over a sustained time, to be with it and explore it, to be with uh, particular body sensations that are present, maybe the sense of warmth or a sense of uh, what we call pain, and to simply be with that, let yourself open up to that experience. And I'll bring in more about the exploration of whatever's happening in mindfulness. But that's the second main way that we practice mindfulness. It's really to really be fully with what's happening, investigate it, sometimes over considerable amount of time. You know, if, if I'm feeling angry and I have a, a lot of anger coming through me, it may last for a while. It may last in my sitting for 10 minutes. And then I really stay with it. What's it like in the body? What's it like in the mind? What's the emotional energy? Is that kind of exploration is a fundamental way that we practice mindfulness. And then a third aspect of mindfulness uh, is, is yet more complex. This is starting to see the patterns of experience 
particularly how some of our most persistent patterns, what are common patterns, particularly how something arises, what triggers my anger, what, when my anger passes away, what comes in its place. We look, we look at patterns, we look at stimulus, how something open, how something develops, how something passes away. And we really, as we do that, we start to bring in more of the wisdom dimension because we notice impermanence, we notice how things are just happening according to patterns and conditioning. And we may have a further sense of this just being like a, uh, almost like a regularity of nature given my conditioning, (laughs) right? And so we can open up to the wisdom dimension of seeing impermanence and seeing where there's suffering and seeing how it's not really something under my control. We can have a sense of what we call not-self, which I'll, I'll come back to. Those are three ways that we practice mindfulness. The interesting thing about the text on mindfulness is that here, with all of the different aspects of experience, we are simply trying to be with experience. We, if there is anger, we're with the anger. If there is heat, we're with the heat. And what's interesting there is that what we're distinctly not doing in these teachings on mindfulness is trying to change what's there or trying to fix a problem. So it's quite interesting. We could look at, for example, at difficult emotions. And I'll come back to this probably towards the end of the day. We could look to difficult emotions and have all sorts of ways that we can modify them, change them, work with them, intervene, you know. I can take my anger and analyze it. You know, where did this come from? What are the associations that I have? Or I can learn, I can say, I have anger now, let me shift it to loving kindness, right? Or I can, I'm feeling angry now, uh, and at times this is useful, right? At times I'm, I'm a, um, I don't know, I'm a brain surgeon, and I've just had a difficult conversation with my colleague, I'm really, really angry, and it's time for surgery. <laughs> it's not the time necessarily during the surgery, let me just be mindful of my anger. It might be very valuable in that context to have a technique that just shifts us out of it, right? But that's not what mindfulness is. We wouldn't be doing mindfulness practice. So it's very interesting that, and this is something that when we are practicing mindfulness, we will continually come up against our own tendencies, particularly with unpleasant experiences, to want to get rid of them, to want to change them, to want to fix them. Mindfulness doesn't do any of those. And that's really important to remember that the, again, I think in a complete, uh, in a complete sense of how to work with thoughts and emotions, we want to have in our repertoire ways of shifting, ways of um, getting out of, different, of certain states and so forth. That's part, I think, of our practice or, or how to develop other states and so forth. But when we're actually doing mindfulness, we are, and, when we're, and we don't always have the capacity to do that. Sometimes we're lost in things and we may need to shift out even to have the capacity for mindfulness. So, but when we're actually being mindful, 
we are with whatever's happening without trying to fix or change. Very important uh, dimension of these teachings. <clears throat> so I think we can see why mindfulness is, is, is very important. That we develop the capacity to be with our experience, and in doing so, we, we establish this sense of space around what's ever happening that permits us not to be so caught in a given reaction. I can notice my anger and be with my anger, and even though it may take me away for a minute or five minutes or ten minutes, when I come back, I can be present and I know that I'm angry and I'm not in the anger at that moment. It permits me to actually see my mind, notice where the reactions are going, and then on that basis I can use wisdom. I can, as it were, bring in the wisdom factor to say, how should I respond? In a nutshell, we would say that the capacity of mindfulness makes possible response rather than reaction. And this is incredibly powerful, right? And another way we could talk about it is that mindfulness makes it possible for us not to be bound and controlled by our own minds. One teacher once said that the aim of mindfulness is to protect us from ourselves. <laughs> and so we, we, um, we gain, through the mindfulness, a certain degree of freedom from our reactive patterns, which are simply occurring and repeating themselves. And so that is the, really the promise of our mindfulness practice, that it gives, it brings us uh, some ability not to be caught in reactivity, again, meaning the compulsive grabbing hold and pushing away, which we'll get to in a while, and to have a certain degree of freedom, to increase the dimension of freedom and the possibility of response to a given moment in experience. And so simple in that sense, but very powerful. And all of the practice we do and all of the understanding uh, contributes to that. Let me say briefly a few words about the first two foundations and about the four foundations in general, partly as a review before getting to the third foundation. <clears throat> so, very interestingly, we are given guidance to be mindful in specific ways. We're not just told, hey you, be mindful. Um, because we wouldn't necessarily know what to do, but we're particularly said, focus in these areas, because these are really important areas to look at. It's quite interesting, you know. We might have had other foundations of mindfulness, right? We could have other foundations, but there are four that are particularly chosen. And in a way, they're very, very basic. One way of understanding these four foundations is that the first three are about particular core constituents of experience, and the fourth is about larger patterns of experience. And we move, and maybe this is what you were asking with your question about the 
complexity of the third foundation, there's a way in which we're moving towards greater subtlety of mind. And we start with mindfulness of the body, that we attend to the experience of the body. And in the text, there are 14 ways of doing that, and Sally went into them. Uh, 14 ways of being mindful of the body, most of which we don't do here. You know, we don't do, uh, with some exceptions, we don't do much on mindfulness of the 32 parts of the body. It's taught in some traditions, and one of the teachers uh, who teaches here a fair amount, Bob Stahl, some of you may have studied with him, he does teach that. And you can find guided meditations on that that, um, way of being mindful of the body. The main ones that we would do at Spirit Rock are mindfulness of the breath, mindfulness of the different sensations of the body, and mindfulness of our body as we're going through the activities of the day. It would be mindfulness in walking, mindfulness in eating, mindfulness in being in this posture or that posture. And there are these other practices that bring in uh, mindfulness of the different parts of the body, which in the monastic tradition was taken to be a way especially of developing less attachment to the body. And uh, there's also the mindfulness of the four elements, the way that, uh, in a sense, we can see and experience our bodies in terms of the elements of uh, um, fire and air and water and earth, and see the ways that our bodies are very much Uh, parallel to, continuous with, the core elements of all of the natural world. And that's a practice which is taught sometimes, but not not as a foundational practice. And then we have the practice of the charnel grounds, of being with dead bodies. Again, very much the intention there is to be with the decaying body and to know that this will happen to me at some time. Again, it's designed to work through attachment to the body. Interesting that in the West, we don't deal with attachment to the body. (laughs) Is there a connection? Hmm. (laughs) A rhetorical question. (laughs) uh, Are Westerners attached to their bodies? Hmm. (laughs) We can come back to that. In any case, uh, maybe you explored that in the the first, first, uh, first day long. And so that's very interesting. And mindfulness of the body, I take to be this really crucial practice for all sorts of reasons. Um, Partly uh, for cultural reasons that in this culture, many or most of us are so much identified with thoughts and in in our thinking so much of the day. Uh, And so mindfulness of the body can really be tremendous for actually bringing mindfulness in general to our days. I think of mindfulness of the body as this foundational practice for making mindfulness practice come alive in our daily lives. I think without mindfulness of the body, it's very hard to get there. You know? And so it's a very crucial practice in that way. And it's revelatory. I know when I was first practicing mindfulness of the body, when I was in my early 20s, I had been an athlete for most of my life, very physical, done a lot of hiking, but I wasn't aware of my body. And maybe many of you had similar experiences. 
that I wasn't aware of my body. And I had this one experience when I was a student and walking. I, I lived in Germany for a year as a student. I was walking down this path. And I just had this uh, thought one day, I'm just thinking all the time. I'm like consciousness on a pole. <laughs> and it was kind of a shocking experience. you know. And, and in my first experience of meditation, it was very much returning to my body. And it felt revolutionary. And probably many, how many have had parallel experiences like that? Yeah. So for many of us, maybe some of us came to meditation when we were more grounded in our bodies, perhaps. Uh, but that was my experience. And so it's, I think, very powerful in that way and something that we can really use as a way to have mindfulness practice uh, be more alive in daily life. Um, the second foundation is feeling tone, or Vedana, V-E-D-A-N-A. And it's a very interesting and subtle practice that Sharda helped uh, the group explore last time, uh, which is interesting because Mindfulness of the body, oh yeah, that's an obvious foundation. Mindfulness of thoughts and emotions, yeah, that's kind of obvious. Mindfulness of the feeling tone of each experience, not as obvious, right? Why? And yet the Buddha said, this is one of the four core areas to pay attention to. The sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral uh, in our experience, moment to moment, and as in the guided meditation, we can do it in a variety of ways. And in the uh, homework that Sharda gave, there were a number of different suggestions as to how to practice with mindfulness of feeling tone. It's a very a powerful area because it is the, uh, the, the sense of pleasant or unpleasant, particularly, but also the neutral, they're the gateways to reactivity <laughs> and the gateways to delusion actually. The basic teaching is, is that particularly when there's a somewhat strong, pleasant experience and we're not aware of it, we will tend to grab after it. When there's a significantly unpleasant experience, and you can think of this just when we meditate and have difficult or unpleasant experience in the body, we will tend to push it away in that kind of reactive and compulsive way. And from that, we can do, we, our minds can proliferate, that we can have an unpleasant interaction with someone at work and can brood about it for the next three days. Uh, that's called reactivity. You know, that we can, that our minds can go in that direction. And the radical nature of the second foundation is that we become attentive to the moment of pleasant or unpleasant or neutral and bring that sense of spaciousness to it and we're more likely, when we notice that this is unpleasant, guided in part by the wisdom factor, which can tell us it's very likely you're going to grab the pleasant, it's very likely you're going to push away the unpleasant. Guided by that wisdom, we can be with the pleasant, notice the tendencies to reactivity, and with the mindfulness, not necessarily go there. So, and not necessarily go to those three days of brooding doesn't mean that we make the unpleasantness go away. doesn't mean that we make the anger, the judgment, and so forth, the fear, the anxiety go away. But we notice in the moment the pleasant, the unpleasant, the neutral quality. It's said that when we don't notice the neutral, 
we tend to space out. Nothing's happening. No need for alertness, either towards something good or something bad happening. I guess I'll just space out. <laughs> and so that's actually uh, quite subtle to explore the neutral. But that, so you can see it's a very fundamental foundation. And some of what we'll explore today is also on how when we're working with thoughts and emotions, we bring in the foundations of mindfulness of the body and mindfulness of feeling tone. These aren't really separate foundations, but they are more interrelated. And again, the example of the difficult interaction should make that clear. I would want to, let's suppose I have that difficult interaction, I start, anger starts arising, judgment starts arising towards my coworker. I can be with the unpleasant. Okay, okay, this is very unpleasant. Mm. And then I can notice, yes, I'm starting to get into anger. My body's getting hot. I can bring in the body aspect. My body's getting hot. I'm developing stories in which this person is the evil one and I am the good one. (laughs) Hmm. And I am developing versions of the stories connecting with many incidences in the past where the exact same scenario, curiously, (laughs) uh, proved to be true. And I, I noticed that. So you can see that noticing the pleasant and unpleasant is a way of keeping us, in a way, at a uh, more fundamental level where thing, before things start to proliferate too much. Very, very important practice. And so um, I think that's uh, all I want to say about the first two foundations. The third foundation we typically understand as mindfulness of thoughts and emotions. That's the way we present it on retreats and so forth. And as when we look to the text, we can see that it's a little, there are different aspects of it that we look at. And in a sense, the, that when we look carefully at the text, there's a little bit more than just mindfulness of thoughts and emotions. We bring in maybe more of the wisdom dimension as well. And we'll, we'll look at that. Um, and the uh, fourth foundation, um, is, the, is mindfulness that really is the mindfulness, I like to think of it as lo- looking at larger patterns. Then, and in the text, the core patterns are some of the Buddhist frameworks, such as the five aggregates of experience called the skandhas. This, is, this will be the subject next time. The uh, different sense bases, the different senses and how those are experienced. The seven factors of awakening you know, which are the factors that are both uh, linked with the awakened mind and, and factors that we can develop to move towards the awakened mind, such factors as mindfulness, investigation, energy, um, uh, joy and rapture in the body, calm, concentration, equanimity. And so we track for those. And then the last of the, them is the Four Noble Truths as a framework, which is a very wonderful way to practice, is that we really have our radar up to be mindful of any moment of suffering. This is one of the first practices I got. My first teacher for my first five years was Joseph Goldstein. And he gave me this wonderful practice, which is really a fourth foundation practice. He said, notice when they're suffering. Have your radar up for a moment of suffering, which we are interpreting generally as reactivity. Suffering being distinct from pain. Suffering is the reaction. We can be with the unpleasant, 
without being reactive. So suffering is that reaction. I'll come back to that um, teaching later in the day. Um, and he said, notice when there's that kind of reactivity and suffering. And then ask, where is their grasping? And study that, which is the second noble truth. And so we could, and then I could ask, is there a way that I can let go where I'm grasping? Let's suppose I notice myself suffering because, um, because I'm angry and I don't want to be angry. I'm getting tense or something. And I can say, okay, let's just let the anger be there. Okay, let's let go of the need for the anger not to be there. And that would be a way of letting go and just being with the anger. Um, and, and then the fourth, the fourth noble truth is what are the tools, perspectives that help me to let go? So that would be one way of applying the fourth foundation. So I like to interpret the fourth foundation as practicing mindfulness with the aid of uh, frameworks that help us look at the larger patterns of experience. And I think we could also, in a more psychological way, practice the fourth foundations and really study what are my own personal patterns? What are my own core psychological patterns? That, to me, that could fit under a more contemporary version of the fourth foundation. Okay. So I think rather than uh, go further into the third foundation now, I'll stop here. And let me just take maybe a few minutes if there are any questions or comments about what I said, and then I will, I'll just take about five minutes here, and then I'll go into our walking period. So let's use the mic, and there's a question in the back, and we can, and I'll repeat the question as well. This is just a quick question. It's not particularly about the third foundation, but has the teacher body ever considered doing a day long in a cemetery? Has the teacher body ever considered doing a day long in the cemetery? Uh, In my experience, that discussion has not come up. But something similar has come up in that um, Bob Stahl, who who received a more traditional monastic training in the Burmese tradition where these practices were done, he uh, regularly takes interested teachers to autopsy rooms, you know, and and so there are ways there are ways of doing that in a contemporary way, and and I, I know that he's planning to do that in the next few months for interested teachers, and maybe something like that could be done. You know, I, I remember also there was a wonderful film. I, I I studied film when I was in college. I remember there was a film by a filmmaker named uh, Stan Brackage, who did a whole film of an autopsy, which was like about two hours long. And I remember uh, staying with it. About two-thirds of the people left in the first 20 minutes. But I remember staying with it and experiencing really intense shifts of awareness. By the end, I was seeing this more just as aspects of nature. So I think some of the same ways that the uh, practice works. Put a, put a word in, you know, maybe I can write that down, but to have, a, uh, have a, a day-long autopsy visit. How many of you would want to come? Okay, okay that's, that's a firm commitment.
<laughs> I saw you. <laughs> but yeah, it's actually very, and probably most of us have had experiences being with people who are dying, or maybe with uh, dead animals. I know once when I was living in Virginia, there was a, there was a sheep that died, uh, was drowned, and just was in a creek. And I remember it was there for a while, and just being, being with it. It was quite, quite powerful. So maybe, yeah, please. Could you speak a little about um, attachment to the body or detachment to the body as it relates to healing trauma when a person wants to be in their body and feel their body? Mm -hmm. So can I talk in a minute or two about attachment to the body in the context of trauma when someone really wants to be in the body. Yeah, I mean, it's actually related to a lot of this teaching of mindfulness. And I'll come back more in the afternoon um, because um, in a way, um, there are, mindfulness, I think, is not for everyone at every time, at every moment. And we're actually, uh, among the teacher body, we're looking a lot at, at, the, at the way we work with people who have experienced trauma. Um, and there's some very good work being done on that. And, and so I think a lot of the um, monastic guidance would not necessarily be skillful for someone with trauma. And even the, the guidance, be with your body in a retreat for hours, in relatively unguided, for days on end, would not be skillful guidance for someone with trauma. You know that, and, and so I'll, again, I'll come back to this later. But it's part of the theme of uh, uh, how do we balance the mindfulness practice with other kinds of practices? And there'd be for someone with trauma, or someone who is going through a very very difficult state, we wouldn't say necessarily just be mindful with it unless we were really sure that the capacity for mindfulness was there. And typically it would not be there. And we would have to develop it and we would use other tools that would strengthen. You know, in, in the work on trauma we often use the language of uh, resources. Right? We would develop other resources. And this is true for trauma, it would be true for when we're going through a really hard stretch. And when we try to be mindful of something that's difficult, we just get lost in it. Right? That would not be, because one of the fundamental um, teachings or distinctions that we need to know is when am I really lost and taken away by something and when am I really being mindful? And we need to know that well. And a lot of times we are lost in something and we think I'm being mindful. It's not really the case. And so when we are, if we are, if there's something happening in our lives or has happened that leads us to be when we go there, when we go there to be lost virtually all the time, mindfulness would not be uh, mindfulness, especially unguided mindfulness, would not be so helpful. And we use other tools. We might say uh, work with metta, or work with developing a friendly relation to your body in all sorts of ways, right, and so forth. So that's a short answer to a, to a complex topic. So I think there are a lot of hands. So. Um, I think for the sake of time, I just wanted to, let me take, um, I'll take, um, I'm just going to take two more questions, and, and if you can reserve yours, you'll have the first question in the next section. Okay, please. Was I one of the two yes. that you were going to take? Yeah. Um, 
I may have answered this question myself, but I'm just going to check with you. When you talked about feeling tone um, being the gateways to reactivity, guided by wisdom, we would not necessarily go to those three days of brooding if, you know, if you're feeling the anger, um, and then, or to the pleasant activity. And I was going to ask for an example of why you wouldn't go towards the pleasant activity, but I'm, in answering it myself, is it because you don't want to go, is, is it a matter of unwholesome activity? Well, the, the, um, the presence of the pleasant isn't the problem, it would be the grasping. It's the grasping after the pleasant and being relatively lost in it. I mean, mean, we can see this in all sorts of everyday examples, such as with food, right? Am I am I really tasting the food, or am I, uh, you know, sometimes uh, shoveling it (laughs) with our small shovels? Yeah. So. yeah, so what we want to notice is the sense of pleasant, and the pleasant in itself is not a problem. You know, I've had a meditation group where for two hours we just ate chocolate and watched the feeling tone. I don't know if Sharda did that last time. <laughs> it's not, I didn't notice it on her list of practices. But you could do that. Take something really pleasant. It actually can be really uh, informative because we have a pretty conditioned relationship to what's pleasant. Mm-hmm. And we often don't actually experience mm-hmm. the pleasant. We just have a, there's a mind state that says, I like this. You know, I, I noticed this especially once with uh, doing a retreat uh, over Thanksgiving when they you know, hadn't served dessert for a number of weeks. <laughs> And then they served ice cream, cake, all you could eat. <laughs> and I did mindfulness of feeling tongue with the ice cream. It was surprisingly unpleasant. It tasted metallic and fatty. And it was actually, when I actually hooked, stayed in with it, it was not pleasant. My mind had very pleasant ideas. That's different. So it's more the, in, the invitation to investigate what's really there. And the pleasant or the unpleasant is not in itself a problem. It's what we do with it. Same thing with most of the emotions as well. Um, Max? So my question is about um, the practice of mindfulness. When you mentioned, like, obviously, if you're going to do brain surgery to stop doing that practice. But, like, let's say I'm practicing and something like anger is coming up and I'm trying to be mindful Mm. and mindful. When do you decide, okay, I'm going to do loving kindness? Or, like, how do you make the decision to keep staying with the practice. Yeah, when, when to be mindful and when to bring another practice. I'll, probably, I'll go into more detail on that towards the end of the day because okay. it really is a question of how mindfulness relates to other practices and other ways of responding to a situation. Okay. Uh, but the... Um, I mean, it, it would be complex. It depend, you know, if you're on the meditation cushion, the general guideline would be, can I be balanced in my mindfulness and really stay with it? Uh, rather than being lost. If you're off the cushion, all sorts of other factors come up about that determine whether it's wise or not. And generally, as in most of these things, if you can ask the question, is this wise, that's about 80% of the work. <laughs> okay. okay, thank you. So we'll come back to that. Um, good, so let me keep, we'll do a walking meditation now. We can also use the bathroom. Thanks for your patience uh, with this. That, that was really more the foundational material. 
Um, let me give some guidance for our walking period. I think we'll come back at 11.20 uh, or so. So if we can ring, have a bell rung um, about 11, a little before 11.15, and we'll come back into a guided meditation. And so what I'd like to do is to invite you, maybe first in the walking meditation, to just, uh, we've been talking a lot. There may be a lot of reverberation through the thoughts, but come back in the walking meditation to your body. Maybe the first 10 minutes or so, come back to that more stabilized attention, being aware of the body in the walking. And then uh, the last period of time, add the instruction of noticing when noticing thoughts or emotions which come. And of course you'll be doing that some in the first part, just noticing when your mind goes away from the attention to the body, the feet, the legs in the walking meditation, to come back to uh, come back there, but notice that you've been thinking. And you begin just begin to track thoughts and emotions. Again, for many of us, it's something we've been doing for a number of years. Um, and if you want to work uh, with a label for the thoughts and emotions, you can begin to do that. You can notice thinking or you can notice just a few of the kinds of thinking, planning, remembering, uh, so forth. Or if there's an emotion that's present, you can notice it's sadness, anger, and so forth. Just notice it. If it stays, be with it. If it just passes, just stay at the level of the noting. And is there anyone who needs uh, walking meditation instructions? Okay. If you do, why don't you come up front and again, we'll ring the bell <clears throat> a little before 11.15. It'll be about a 20-minute period now to go back into practice. And that'll segue into a guided meditation when we come back. So stay in silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.